Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, joined by my colleague Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Greetings, greetings, greetings. In this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. As you know, The Scrum tends to be a guest-driven show, with Peter offering his insights as he and I talk with an ever-shifting cast of characters. But in this installment of The Scrum, Peter is going to take center stage for a conversation about two big developments, the ongoing meltdown of the MBTA starring the red line and Elizabeth Warren getting relegated to the kiddie table for the upcoming Democratic presidential debates right when her presidential stock seems to be going through the roof. Peter, let's start with the tea. About a week ago, a red line train derailed just outside JFK UMass and caused some pretty dramatic physical damage. Since then, service has been delayed or reduced, and general dissatisfaction with the T has reached what feels to me like an all-time high. Case in point, an editorial from the Boston Globe editorial page, which is usually pretty friendly to the governor, titled, Going Off the Rails on Charlie Baker's Train, which called Baker's stewardship of the T, quote, his Achilles heel when it comes to a potential third term. So, Peter Kadzis, is the Globe being overly dramatic here? Theoretically, no, but it is a theoretical question. Um, We don't know whether Baker will seek a third term. There's a big honking trial balloon that's been floated out there. So this could be, let's also bear in mind that um, this is a T crisis, small C crisis, uh, nothing to compare with the great snow out you know, when the tea literally ground to a halt. But um, it it's pretty bad because it makes you wonder what could come next. Were you affected, by the way, by this derailment? I know you're a sometime redline rider. Well, I was only affected indirectly. I, I'm a sometime redline rider. I just stayed away from it completely. The orange line went fairly well. You know, the 89 bus, which I take a lot, went fairly well. Where I did feel it was a couple of times I had to take an Uber um, just because of personal business. I had to come in late and get to work fast. So I went from JP to Brighton and the, the ride was $10 more. Um, it didn't say surge pricing. It was just really busy. Yeah, I, I noticed on certain mornings, one day Sue gave me a ride. Sue, my wife, gave me a ride in. Traffic was screwed up. So I could see the way it rippled through Boston. Um Am I right to suggest that frustration with the T is peaking on the heels of this red line derailment? And of course, there was that green line derailment a couple of days before, but that was different because apparently operator error was involved. But you mentioned the the great snow out of what year was it? It seems like an eternity ago, but the, 20, s- the snowy year. The, the snowy <laughs> year. Thank you. Um, so so you're right that the system is working in a way that it wasn't then. But of course, the the flip side of that is. Back then, we had this insane, ongoing, extreme weather event where everyone could kind of understand why the system wasn't working. Now we've got summery weather in late spring and a red line train just literally going off the rails. Am I characterizing people's response to this fairly? Because I feel like people, maybe it's stuff that's gone wrong with the tea over the past few months. Maybe it is the traffic that you have to fight if you're not taking the tea. 
Uh, maybe it is the fact that we are now into Charlie Baker's second term and he's taking increased ownership of this. But I, I feel like people are more ticked off than they ever have been. Do you share that? Yeah, I I sense a level of uh, outrage, uh, more a level of anxiety. It, it, it's the unpredictable. Um, it, it's, geez, could this happen to me? I mean, it's bad enough, my friends and your friends, the people we see riding the the red line regularly, especially especially coming in from Quincy and Braintree, where if you're living within the limits of the city of Boston, there are alternate ways to get around. You know, you could even prevail upon a neighbor to give you a ride somewhere. I don't think that the people around Governor Baker take into account what regular T-riders suffer, you know, the the death of a thousand cuts or more accurately a dozen cuts a month or something with delays and breakdowns and things being late. Um, you know, look, I lived in New York City at a time when the T wasn't great. You're talking the subway there or the T here? No, the, 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 the subway in New York. Okay. And, um, you know, during the crack e- epidemic, the city had almost gone bankrupt. New York was in rotten shape. We're getting close to that here. Um, I, I, I think what really spooked people was the news that the Globe carried about Boston being second in derailments only to the much smaller New Orleans. Um, and I think, you know, to the extent to which I can project on other people, that that seeped into people's consciousness, and it's now lodged in their subconsciousness. But Looking at this subject politically, um, this is much more complicated in in strategic political terms. What we see is big dig hangover. Now, you know, the big dig was officially known as, you know, the Central Artery Project. You know, it was that massive reconstruction. It was originally tagged at $15 billion. At the time, it was the largest public works construction project in America. Might even have been the world, I forget. You know, it closed out at $24.3 billion, you know, nine plus billion over. Now you say, what's that have to do with the T? Well, people in the suburbs, especially the western suburbs, remember that. And a shrewd politician like Governor Baker, who begins in a minority position as a Republican in an overwhelmingly Democratic state, has to bear in mind that there's a a, a large swath of the active electorate that has nightmares or bad feelings or whatever about the big dig. So as a result, he's being very cautious, I think overly cautious myself, but what I think is somewhat immaterial. He's very cautious. This is the big dig hangover. A hangover can't cast a shadow (laughs) over the T's problems, but allow me to mix my metaphor. Well, there's also a big dig hangover when it comes to the T's finances, right? Because uh, a big chunk of the T's operating debt was, as I understand it, shifted over from the big dig, correct? Right. Am, that, I, am I phrasing that correctly? No, you're, you're, fra- you're phrasing it correctly. Directionally accurate? <laughs> you're directionally accurate. Look, it, it, at this point, I'm not sure how useful an argument that is to make. It is useful in that the, the big dig debt was transferred to the MBTA. Let's just accept it for what it was, as unfair as some of that was. There were T 
improvements that were part of the big dig, but they're all transportation costs. You know, t- take a look the 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 day we're recording. Um, the, the Baker administration announces that there's going to be, oh, what is it, an $18 billion five-year transportation plan. Now, that includes the $8 billion for the MBTA and another $10 billion for roads and other related things. That's a smart way of looking at it. It's also a very good way to sort of fuzz over. over. Here, right? Yeah, but, but it's fair. We have to think in terms of all transportation costs. Look, if you take the 175 cities and towns that are part of the MBTA service area, and you were to cut those out of Massachusetts, Massachusetts would be a state like Rhode Island. By the way, a lovely place to live, but more or less, you know, a big nothing between New York City and Boston. And People have to wake up to the fact, including those suburbanites that, you know, suffer from big dig hangover, that without Greater Boston, without the area the T serves, this state is, you know, not that noticeable. One thing that I got to bring up before we dive into the back and forth over fare increases, which is a big part of the story that we haven't even touched on yet, I got to ask you if the governor and his advisors not being sufficiently attuned to what it feels like to take the tea on a regular basis and deal with a host of indignities and frustrations, is that something he could rectify by getting on the tea on occasion? As I've said elsewhere, you know, I happen to live in Swampscott like the governor in a different part of town, but I know he is within walking distance of the Swampscott commuter rail. I know he's the governor. He's got a busy schedule to keep travels around the state, but why not take the tea every once in a while and let people bend your ear about what they think of the experience and maybe even get a sense of it for yourself firsthand? Well, I would think that would be a wise thing to do. I can understand politicians not wanting to, you know, bend under pressure. And, you know, I wonder, I'm, I'm willing to bet that many of his advisors do take the tea. Um, by the way, we can talk about this later. You don't see Mayor Walsh on the tee very often. No, you don't. I, I would suggest that Mayor Walsh get ahead of it and take the tee sometimes. But let me ask you, let me reverse it. Why yeah. don't you take the tee in from Swampscott? I took the tee when I started working here at GBH. It's almost 10 years now, which kind of blows me away. I tried taking the tee at the beginning because my wife and I only had one car. And what it meant was going to the commuter rail stop, which is totally fine, take the T in at North Station, totally fine as long as it's running on schedule. But then having to walk to Charles MGH, take the red line outbound to either Kendall or Central, and then hop a bus at one of those stops that would bring me to Brighton. Traffic has changed a lot in the intervening 10 years. It's gotten a lot worse, but it's still at a point, especially as the T seems to be getting worse before it gets better. It is still at a point where the most efficient and reliable way for me to get to and from work, uh, especially if I'm working flexible hours, but even if I'm working normal ones, is to get in the car. And I know this is horribly irresponsible from an environmental point of view, but to get in the car by myself, as I do because I travel uh, at unusual hours, 
get in the car and grit my teeth for the hour or hour and 15 or hour and a half that it takes to make it to and from work. Um, that's an answer which I think a lot of people would frown on. I, there are other things I could do. You know, I could go to North Station and try riding a hubway, but that that's the, the choice that I've ended up making. No, but see, in, in a roundabout way, you're making my point. You're making a series of transportation decisions. And you've that's ru- right. You've ruled out the T for some perfectly reasonable reasons, including unreliability. But you suffer through commuting by car. And by doing that, I make others suffer. Right. But in other words, it's a lose-lose situation yeah. all the way around. And that's why we have to think of this in, in terms of transportation in total. You mentioned Marty Walsh a minute ago. So let's, let's get to him and let's do it via the back and forth over whether these T-fare hikes, which are set to kick in on July 1st, I believe, whether they should be delayed or not until the T gets its stuff together. Uh, I was sitting in for Jim Browdy on Greater Boston on June 13th, and I interviewed Michelle Wu, the Boston City Councilor, who's been very vocal on transit issues lately. She said, no way these fare hikes should go ahead right now. The fair hikes, the fair oh, yes, hikes should hikes. immediately be reversed. We can't ask people to pay for this kind of service. Four days after Wu made those comments, Marty Walsh agreed with her. He tweeted, there should be no fare increase until the red line is fixed. The MBTA must act with urgency, and it's unfair to ask riders to pay more until the red line is fully operational. That, in turn, got a sharp response, at least to my ear, from Governor Baker when our colleague Mike Dean brought it up at this week's State House Leadership Availability. Governor, uh, Mayor Walsh uh, tweeted earlier today that the fa- MBTA fares should not go up until the red line is fixed. Look, there's a process for fares, and the, the way the system is set up, um, many, many people, millions of people in Massachusetts will never ride the MBTA, pay for about half of the cost of the system. Um, the fare box is designed to fund um, what I would describe as sort of another piece of it, and typically floats somewhere around 40%. Um, that's what it will be funding come July with that fare increase. I think I hear echoes of that big dig hangover that you were talking about a little bit ago in that response from the governor. Maybe I'm wrong. Who's right here when it comes to politics, Peter Kadzis, and who's right when it comes to policy? Well, I've got a a number of short points to make. One, in reference to Governor Baker's point about people who don't take the tea paying for it. I remind you of what Massachusetts would be like without the the MBTA catchment area. You know, it would be a big Rhode Island. So that to that. However, Governor Baker's right. There is a process for raising the tea fears. By the way, I didn't like it. I, I don't think it should have happened. But so what? It has happened. How would Mayor Walsh respond if people said, look, I'm not paying increased property taxes because my valuation's gone up until you fix the schools? Good question. It's the same line of thought. Now, Michelle Wu is, you know, making a nice populist point. Um, You know, God bless her. And there is a valid point point to be made there. But just because you make the point doesn't mean you have to act on it. Look, the bottom line is the T needs money. 
If you don't raise the fares, where is some of that money going to come from? The decision was made to raise them. Go ahead. And the harsh, harsh, harsh reality is, and this is one of the things that bothers T. Riders, is it's a captive audience. You know, you can take your car, you can take Uber, you could pay more for an Uber, you could take a taxi. Um, but again, this brings me back to the point. We have to be thinking about how all transportation works together. You sound like Jim Aloisi almost. No, that's a compliment. Which is a, yeah, which <laughs> that, is that, a compliment. That, that, that is a compliment. I think I don't think I ag- completely agree with everything Jim says, but he is directionally correct, and that's that's um, rather uh, uh, pretentious of me to say because <laughs> and he, holistic a, in his approach. He, he, well, I'd like to think I've learned something from listening to Jim Aloisi. You know, it occurred to me while we were talking that maybe. Maybe since they both could gain from riding the T, maybe Charlie Baker and Marty Walsh could ride it together and make a day out of it. No? No, they should ride it separately. I I have to say, I I forgot to mention this before. Let's not forget that Marty Walsh is a union mayor. He's pretty friendly with Governor Baker, and Governor Baker is pretty friendly with him. This is a great opportunity for him to, as a as a union mayor, to score points against Stephanie Pollock without even saying so, because the governor's secretary of transportation, because of the the what I consider modest privatization of the T. So there's a lot there's a lot of politics. There. Oh, so you're saying their interests are divergent here? Yes. So so ride separately. Yeah. If we take Mayor Walsh's. Uh, call for delaying the fare increase uh, as a political case study. Um, you see the inherent power of the mayor of Boston. Um, in, in other words, Michelle Wu has talked about it. Other candidates for local council seats, and they, they make the local newspaper. Two tweets from the mayor. And um, he's on the front page of the Boston Globe. Now, I'm talking about this as a raw exercise in power. But um, that's a shot across everyone's bow because it's an open secret that many people think Michelle Wu is contemplating a run against Mayor Walsh. Yeah, good point. So it's a reminder of how unequal that playing field may be. Right. And by the way, I I think in pure political terms, it's a plus for Mayor Walsh. But Mayor Walsh has something else to worry about. Um, Bloomberg Businessweek has a piece out today pointing out that the thousand acres of the Seaport District is the most at risk from high tides on the whole eastern seaboard. Now, if Charlie Baker was one of the play political hardball with Mayor Walsh, he could say, hey, Marty, why aren't you worrying about the seaport ending up underwater? Let me worry about the red line. I got to say, as you talk about these imaginary ways that they could go back and forth sniping at each other, I find myself kind of bummed out that they have this amiable go-along-and-get-along relationship. It, it's better for us as citizens. I, I, I hate to be high-minded. All right, let's move on to Elizabeth Warren. There are two Democratic presidential debates that are going to air on CNN next week. One debate on Thursday, June 27th, features Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, and Kamala Harris, or as CNN describes them, four of the top five candidates in the race. The other debate on Wednesday, June 26th, features our own Elizabeth Warren, or as CNN describes her, the lone member of the top five 
who's scheduled for that event. Peter Kadzis, should Elizabeth Warren be ticked off? I don't know. This is a chance for her to shine. I mean, if she's as good as she thinks she is, and by the way, as good as I think she's been doing, she gets to blow the other people away. Now, first of all, political debates right before an election, the big, you know, Thunderdome debates, two men enter, uh, two candidates enter, one candidate leaves. Two candidates enter, one candidate kind of walks creepily behind the other as she speaks. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Thunderdome debates, it's been proven, really have almost no effect on the final election. This sort of debate, which can only loosely be called a debate, I mean, mean, it's more like a, uh, a rugby scrum, (laughs) Um, can make a difference. I mean, when Elizabeth Warren did her town hall, you know, a couple of months back, that helped kickstart her ascent upwards. This was in the the five hours of CNN town hall back-to-back. The ones that we watched watched every single minute of. I remember it well. So I'm not so sure it makes that big a difference. Um, She's by herself. She gets to you know, she gets to shine or not. Can I push back gently? Oh, sure, on that sure. She is also, I would think, the one who all the candidates in her debate, the the JV debate, are going to be going after. They're going to be trying to knock her down. You know, I would think the best way to score points and get noticed in that event is to tussle with Elizabeth Warren, if possible. Well, if Elizabeth Warren can't tussle with the so-called JV candidates? How can she tussle with Vladimir Putin? You know, th- 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 being president of the United States is a tough and I think rotten job. Fair point. Um, she has proven to be remarkably resilient. Warren has proven to be, um, well, she's proven so many people wrong. She's been slow and steady and she's kept her eye on the ball. And let's see how she performs. I was really surprised that CNN made this particular call because it seems to be coming at a point where the narrative around Warren has her gaining steam, gaining strength, and in a way showing a lot of the other candidates how you're supposed to to run for the White House. I'm thinking of that New Yorker piece that floated the question, can Elizabeth Warren win it all? And I think the New Yorker's answer was, yes, she definitely can win it, although it wasn't a a wholly uncritical or unskeptical piece. There was that New York Times story that talked about how Warren and Buttigieg had cracked the code when it comes to running for president and I think credited him with media manipulation uh, based on sort of opportunistic moves like busting out a Miles Davis tune while he was playing the keyboard and her with media manipulation for launching detailed plan after detailed plan on a host of complex policy issues. But it gave them both credit, uh, gave him more credit than I'm making it sound like. Plus, we see her gaining ground in polls. There's a new poll out of South Carolina that shows her in second place behind Joe Biden. She's gained since the last iteration of the poll. He's dropped. She seems to be doing very well in Iowa. She's tightly bunched with a couple other candidates uh, right behind Joe Biden. So that, I think, was what really gave me pause here because everything else seems to be going well for her. And I'm not sure why CNN didn't, I guess, reward her for that. Well, I have no idea. But listening to you talk, I wonder maybe CNN wants to create their own narrative by by putting her with candidates not doing as well 
a certain sort of story may come out of it. Oh, that. that's interesting. You know, this, it sounds like a Jeff Zucker kind of thing. Well, that, by the way, that could be, or it could just have happened. Um, the reason really doesn't matter. You know, what matters is, is, is what comes out. You know, look, a lot has happened since she announced early on. At the moment, and I'm, I'm about the generalizations I'm about to make are looking at a whole series of charts from real clear politics. You know, you've got Biden and uh, uh, Bernie Sanders as the two clear front runners, and then you have Warren Harris and Buttigieg, um, all within striking distance of each other. I think that's the reality that that matters, and that's one reason why I think Warren, being you know the the most purebred of the candidates on her own with the other lesser breeds, if you will, um, might not be a bad thing for her. But it, it's also really important to remember one that professional pollsters, the the, the political science of polls, or whatever you want to call it, is that. Polls don't really begin to matter until 300 days before the election. Um, They matter now because they're little snapshots. They're still little snapshots then, but but they're snapshots with more meaning. Um, And if you just look at the record of of people who were frontrunners, you've got Muskie in uh, 1972, he came a cropper. You got Gary Hart in 1988, he didn't go anywhere. And then we had Hillary Clinton in 2008 when she was beaten by Obama. So being in front is great. Someone has to be the front runner. But that might be why David Bernstein... Another esteemed colleague. Another esteemed colleague, talking politics, uh, who, you know, has never been big on Biden, but he he thinks that Bernie will definitely be there in January. That Bernie will be there? That Bernie will be, that he he thinks that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren will definitely be in contention in um, January of 2020. Is it fair to say you talked about the the balance of strength in the race, citing real clear politics. I have felt without paying super close attention to the numbers, like what we've seen uh, in in the polls and what we've maybe gathered from more anecdotal reporting is that the air has been coming out of the Biden balloon a bit, even though he still seems to be uh, the front runner and that something similar might be going on with Sanders, too. Am I right there? Or do you maybe a better thing to ask is, do you share my sense of of where things are moving, or or do you have a different one? No, I, I I think what you just said is reasonable. I mean, we've got a long way to go. The balloons will go up, the balloons will go down. Uh, Warren has had a remarkable comeback. Um, frankly, at this point, if Harris were to overtake her, you know, by the minuscule point she has now, I don't think it makes that much difference. Biden, I I have to say, I I just don't know how to read that. What I do know how to read is that the entire, or almost the entire media, you know, press corps is, you know, progressive friendly. I I mean, 
Biden's the guy then to knock down. And then if if you read the conservative press, and as you know, I read a lot of it, Avidly. They, they love to knock Biden down, you know, because Biden's the biggest threat to Trump. Even the never Trumpers are, are shooting at Biden. You know, you shoot at the person in the front. But what you say is reasonable. Again, longtime listeners will know that I am trying to follow this race with very few convictions, you know, take it a few days at a time. It's vexing. Well, one thing that I've wondered uh, with with my perception of where Biden is heading, you and I talked about this, I think, on GBH Radio with Joe Matthew. I'm not sure we've talked about it in, in the scrum context. So I just want to make the point quickly. He seems to me to have this silver bullet notion of American politics in which if the Democrats are able to unseat Donald Trump, in 2020, everything just magically goes back to the way it used to be. Uh, And Republicans start working with Democrats again in a bipartisan manner, ideally under the leadership of President Joe Biden. And what seems weird to me about this is that that faith in the inherent bipartisan goodwill of the American body politic kind of runs counter to everything Biden would have experienced as Barack Obama's vice president. And yet, my sense is he genuinely believes it. And I wonder if primary voters in particular, are are penalizing him for that. I don't know. A very experienced politician might term that malarkey. Um, Biden's thing or my (laughs) thing, or both, maybe. Biden's thing, malarkey. Look, Joe Biden, as I said before, is an amiable hack. I mean, he's a very good one. Um, I think for the time being, he can get away with saying that. And then his his message will slowly change. You know, let's not forget um, Etch-A-Sketch Mick, Mitt Romney, um, uh, who was the Romney it aide. It was Eric Fernstrom. Eric Fernstrom. Who was asked how he was going to make the shift to the general. And, yeah. He, he, said, he said it's like an Etch-A-Sketch. And that was a very shrewd and accurate assessment. It's working for him now. We'll see how it goes. I, I mean, those of us in the media look at this stuff with a— you know, a perverse exactitude. I mean, these folks are running for office. I mean, they're selling themselves. Um, they're, they're saying what they've got to say to to move ahead. That does not mean they don't believe it. But um, I, I don't think we're going to have uh, a new era of bipartisanship should Joe Biden become president. All right. That is going to do it for another episode of The Scrum. Peter Kadzis, thank you for flying solo. It was fun. I thought this worked out. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Peter and I would love it if you subscribed to The Scrum, if you rated us online, and if you told a friend or two about the podcast. We'd also love to hear from you, either by email, we're at scrum at wgbh.org, or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam, and Peter is at Kadzis. Our engineer was John Parker, and we get crucial production help from him, Doug Sugartz, Andrew Massawa, and Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.